Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking Force. Today we have a very special guest, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Tom. Now you you've served in a lot of different roles uh, leading up to your current position over at Middletown Medical. Could you just walk us all through just kind of your journey and your story to how you got where you're at today? Yeah. Um, so for a lot of PTs, I, I guess it kind of starts in a similar way: high school athlete with an injury. Um, and then you and then you start progressing that in that way. So uh, I had family in the PT profession. Uh, my aunt and uncle they they own a PT place here in my hometown. So any any little injuries that I'd be dealing with, any tendinopathies, anything like that going on in high school, I played uh, baseball, I swam. So I had a lot of little things just kind of nag me. So I'd, I'd get a lot of exposure to the PT environment by going in there, um, and then said, you know what, this is this is something that I really enjoy, and this is something I want to pursue. So. Uh, started looking for programs that were what they called like assurance programs. They still have them. I think they're great for PT. Um, they're accelerated programs, bachelor's in three years, and then you, you start your grad school portion there. Um, so I'm from Orange County, New York, uh, and I was just kind of doing a search from, from there, trying to stay, stay within, you know, a relative, relatively medium distance from, from where I live and uh, ended up looking at Springfield college because I uh, interested in exercise science as well. Um, and they, they have a strong base there. So ended up going to Springfield, uh, played baseball while I was there. And then uh, once I got in, once I got into uh, grad school, obviously the baseball had to stop and it was, and it was all books from there. Um, and then after grad school uh, and towards the end, right, you have your, you have your rotations that every student has to go through. So had a good mix. Um, I had one inpatient uh, in Falmouth Hospital out in the Cape. Um, which was which was good, um, but that definitely solidified uh, my ideas that I that I really wanted to get into uh, get into sports and, and ortho a little bit more. Initially, when I was in grad school, I I told myself that I wanted to go for the in PT in the profession you can get a specialization in any in anything. Um, initially, I wanted to go neuro. Um, so when I first went into grad school, interestingly enough, I was I was dead set on want to be spinal cord injuries, uh, neurodegenerative disease like ALS, uh, MS. Parkinson's, things of that nature. Um, I at first I had thought that the the sports orthopedic world was too straightforward. Um, I, I I honestly and obviously it was completely wrong. Um, thought that it was going to be a little bit too simple. Um, I was just like, well, it's it's very straightforward. You get this, you follow a protocol, and then you know you get this end product. Um, I would say one of my first clinicals, which was at a place called Central Mass PT in. Uh, West Boylston, Mass. Um, that was a that was a really neat site. So they had a they had a traditional PT setup, and then they had a satellite location. Can't remember the type of place what I what the name of the place was, but it was a strength conditioning facility, um, and then we had a satellite location there. It was a beautiful facility, a lot of great uh, trainers in that in that facility as well. We really start to dive a little bit more into the nuances of of return to sport testing, return to sport uh, preparation, and those things. Um, and that was definitely one of the big switches for me where I was like, you know what, uh, this ortho uh, sports world is is a lot more than just following a protocol and there's no cookie cutter way and you can be pretty creative and, and dive into things. So that's that's where I start to see that. Um, so in that clinical, I, I really started to realize that, you know what, maybe maybe neuro isn't what I wanted and this is what I wanted. And then from there, um, I. I ended up finishing my rotations. I had another, uh, pretty much like your, like your typical outpatient uh, mill type type setting as well, which don't love, but I think it's 
I think it's good for somebody to be exposed to to kind of see what what you're what you're all about as far as you know whether whether you can do something like that or not. Um, that's typically a place where a lot of new grads start, um, but fortunately, um, not not all have to if you if you have a good situation. Um, when I first got out of first got out of school, I'd known that I I wanted to go to Middletown Medical, um, but things just didn't really align right away. Uh, so I did a few months with with an access locally, um, which is like a chain PT place. Uh, nothing against them, but uh, don't really don't really have the focus to drive to the the highest level of of sports rehab and return to sport. Just just that's not really their business model um, per se. Um, they're they're definitely seeing the everyday individual, which is something that I still see. Um, however, when I when I jumped ship and went to Middletown Medical. Uh, one of the benefits of that company is it is physician owned, which sometimes people can say oh, it's scary because they don't understand uh, what, what PTs need. Um, but with that being said, it's a large enough company. So you have financial backing. Um, so you're able to get equipment and, and things that you need. And in a lot of ways, you're, you're able to kind of run the show um, because you, you are the expert in PT and rehab. And a lot of times the physicians don't really don't really know. So you're able to say, you know what, this is what we need to do. Um, if you're working for uh, a company like Access, which is, again, not necessarily their business model, you you might find yourself getting a lot of pushback of saying, you know, like, for instance, the force plates, like, do we really need these? You know, these kind of things where it's like, I I understand the value in it. But if my if my boss is a PT who's been doing something for 20, 30 years and just kind of running through the motions, they're not seeing that. So that's it's kind of how I, I got to where I am with Middletown Medical. And uh very, very happy with what I am. I'm almost, I, I feel in a lot of ways, which is great. Um, practicing with very little barriers. Um, and that's, and that's really what I want as a young clinician. I'd love to give your, your get your take on PT is interesting, right? It's, it's very clear that it's medical, but it spans this gap from you're not ambulatory. You can't walk with like the three little wooden steps to you're coming back with a perform, high performance athlete that has to do things that are so outside of the norm. And so then you have insurance and then you have people with means, people without, but then you have this Delta in between. And you, you mentioned some of the classical individuals who say, well, we've been doing it for years without it. Why do we need it? But I think now more than ever, you better have some data to back up kind of some of your assumptions. You just can't go through the motions. And I don't know whether that's a market's demand of standard of care is going up. But you as a practitioner on an ethical side, if there's a resource or a tool, um, just like the same thing with medicine or new techniques that a, a surgeon might use, you're kind of obligated to vet it out. I'd love to hear your take on how do you blend a lot of the old school principles, but then kind of do it in a modern way. I've had a chance to come out to see your facility, very progressive. And even in the fact that you have a squat rack in your PT yeah. clinic. And I think that that's something that I would guess is going to continue to evolve and go towards that direction because you do have to bridge that gap. But what are you seeing kind of that is translating to the new generation? Um, and then what is the, the new generation needing to pay attention to from the past? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it starts with evidence-based practice. Um, and that was, and that was one of the biggest transitions, but it's taking a long time to set in um, as far as when they said, okay, PT, I, I think it was early 2000s or something where they said, all right, you're going to have to have a doctorate, right? Um, that's, that's your entry-level position. And the big push with, with that was that you were going to get evidence-based practice. Um, that's not always the case. Um, I think often what... Yep. And what do you mean by evidence-based practice? Like for someone listening, it's, it, this isn't just a, you know, oh, 
I'm going to go watch a bunch of different clinicians, like evidence-based practice is an actual methodology and approach. Could you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah. yeah. So, so when you think of evidence, right, there's definitely a hierarchy of evidence as far as there's, there's an order, right? So at the, at the bottom, right. And don't quote me on this, but, but for the, for the most uh, general explanation, I would say, right. We have like our expert opinion and then we get into our, our case reports. Then we get into our cohort studies and we get to our RCTs, systematic reviews. And at the top, we have our meta-analyses, right? Um, so th that's, that's really the hierarchy of, of studies that we want to look at, right? So when we look at you know, expert opinion of, of what people are doing for a long time. We, we don't really love that stuff. I'm not saying it doesn't have value. And there's certain things when we talk about case studies that, that you almost have to look at from a case study perspective, but we really like those, those RCTs to systematic reviews to meta-analyses. And, and in the education of a PT, um, the more modern education now where you have to have that entry-level uh, doctorate degree, um, it's really teaching you how to annotate and appraise literature throughout that entire continuum and then really focus on, focus on that, that higher end um, which I think is really, really important to have as a clinician. PTs understand it. You, you should have a good understanding of that if you're passing the boards, right? That's, that's pretty much the entry-level information you should have. However, I see a big gap of a lot of PTs coming out of school knowing what's right, but they're doing their rotations underneath someone in their eyes who have been doing something for 20, 30 years um, who might not have ever been taught that stuff. And it's very easy to get complacent in those, in those roles. Um, and just say, you know what, they've been doing it. I know I know this stuff. I'm coming out of school, but they've been doing they've been doing these things for a long time, right? They've they've been doing a very passive treatment. Um, where now most of the literature is really pointing towards, you know, therapeutic exercise and the value that that can really have, right? So I'm the like pretty much the best way to make change to a tissue is to apply load to that tissue. Um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of manual techniques have have their place, but uh, they, they can feel they're, they're transient in a lot of ways, right? We're not we're not changing the properties of tissue. We're not changing structure. Um, so a lot of the more passive treatments where traditionally, you know, for a long time, people might think of PT as coming in, getting ultrasound, which in our clinic, we actually, I couldn't tell you the last time I ultrasound a patient or anyone in my clinic has ultrasound a patient. Um, but traditionally, it would be something passive like that, um, followed by some sort of passive range of motion, maybe some soft tissue work, and then maybe one or two exercises of two sets of 10 or something, you know, and it's like the, we're just not getting that load for the tissue. So a lot of times people get better. That's a good way to get people out of pain, because if you just take away any, if you take away any stimulus or you take any way, way any, any load, you remove the person from the situation and then just have them pretty much rest, do passive treatment. We you can probably get pain down, but you're, you're not doing any favors to that patient as far as making anyone any more resilient or, or preventing pain from the future. So I, I, I'm not sure if that answers your question spot on. I might've gone off on a little, little tangent there, but uh, it's, it's hard to bridge that gap. Um, and I think it comes down to younger PTs like myself being able to kind of steer a clinic in the direction, in the direction that, that we know is best from what we've been learned, from what we've been learning, what the literature is saying. Yeah. I often found myself when I would be, you know, cause I, I would work side by side, our sports medicine at Yale and, and currently here at Hawk. And we interface with a lot of different practitioners. I find myself looking at, okay, what are you doing for your treatment? And then if you want to do soft tissue work and you want to do joint mobs and that stuff, that's cool. Um, but then what's that next progression? And when I've seen the individuals that we'll just call it with the regular population, they can get people back to the activities of daily living, but really kind of the superstars or, or I always think about the people that work on the Ferraris, there's just something a little bit different. They understand some of the loading schemes. They're understanding not just the joint, like this is a knee, this is an elbow, this is a shoulder. They're starting to look system wide. And they're also looking at subsystems that while we're down, 
can be brought up to speed. So the example that I gave um, on the podcast with uh, my colleague, um, Paul Smith, was someone comes in for a knee, it's a great time to work on upper body. It's a great time to work on the back. And that's a big shift then saying, well, you are injured. Uh, you were injured for six months. And, and so now you're going to detrain in these other areas because you detrain, well, you fix the knee, then the shoulder goes. And so having coordination, communication, I don't know really in the private sector where I've seen it end to end the way that it is in the college or call it the professional market, but I think that's where it's headed. And like you said, there's, we've been doing this for a long time, but if you haven't been working on 300 pound individuals or six foot nine individuals, yeah. You may be 100% correct, but only within a small scope. And I, and I agree that that evidence-based practice approach is kind of where we need to head. Um, and then also do so with caution. You talked about that peer review. I mean, we're seeing this now in strength and conditioning where anybody that can get on TikTok or Instagram, the number of likes and followers you have is your credibility. It's almost like its own Google score, like the Google yeah. H score, but it's, it's followers. And I think that's a slippery slope because on medical side, obviously, you know, you guys are in a different realm than say strength and conditioning, which tends to be a little bit more freelance. Um, but I do think that there's going to need to be a new paradigm in the lens. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, kind of walk us through um, just like when you think about knees, when you think about shoulders, you can pick whichever joint's your favorite. What are some of the questions that you're asking sure. early on in that process? And I think for listeners, you know, hearing the way that you've, you've talked to me in the past, I think it's very intuitive. Um, but also a lot of people aren't doing it as well as you guys have been at Middletown. Can you walk through just the general list of questions that you think about when you get a patient day one? Yeah. Yeah. So as far as we'll, we'll kind of get into whatever joint or body segment we're looking at a lot, I also do a lot of, do a lot of lumbar as well. Um, so number one, um, what's their, what's their baseline as far as, and when I say baseline, not just saying like what they do on a daily basis, but what's their what's their training age, what's their, what's their tissue tolerance, what, what are they doing, right? Um, so I think that's, that's one of the most important th things to look at um, as far as how much, how much load are they going to tolerate? Um, and then as far as, are you just talking about like an, an evaluation, like a new patient coming in, right? And then we're going over, we're going a duration of pain, right? I think it's important to establish whether something's chronic or acute. And then we're, and then we're going through a uh, mechanism of injury, prior, prior history of injuries and, and pretty much uh, talk about like regional interdependence. Uh, that's some like SFMA principles, um, right? Going over some things like that as far as, you know, if you're coming in for your, for your left knee, is there any issues going on up the chain, even looking at the contralateral side, like right hip? Um, a lot of times you can see issues there for, for lacking IR in the right hip, right? We might, we might find some issues in the left knee. We see those uh, diagonal patterns a lot of times, and that's something that, that Gray Cook talks about a lot in the SFMA. Um, so things, things of that nature is where we're starting. And then we kind of get into the, the traditional approach there, looking at objective measurements, like range of motion strength. One of the biggest things that, that has always frustrated me with that is how, how that is our objective information. Yet I, I find it very subjective, especially the strength aspect, range of motion. That's, that's pretty straightforward. Um, but understanding, uh, when to look at range of motion, how to look at range of motion as well. Uh, a lot of times there's, there's always this set. Uh, this is how you measure knee flexion. This is how you measure ankle dorsiflexion, right? Talk about ankle dorsiflexion a lot. Um, and I take, I take in students from Mercy College. Um, so far, yeah, it's been the, the one that, that we've been getting most of our students from. We also take in some PTA students from a from local community college as well. But dorsiflexion, everyone's laying on their back. You have them bring their, bring their, their toes up towards their nose. You measure 
you measure how much dorsiflexion we're getting there, right? You usually want to see like 15 to 20 degrees there. But if you look at the bottom of a squat, um, somebody's closer to 40 degrees, right? So if there's any sort of block in that joint, a lot of times I, I think it's really important to get away from the norm of saying, this is how we measure range of motion. This is how we measure strength. It's like, let's put them into some practical positions. If someone's walking down the stairs, right? And they're the, uh, the stance leg, right? So if you're walking down, you're stepping down with your right, your left leg still up on the step, that, that ankle right there is gonna get 35 degrees of dorsiflexion. You might show me you have 15 or 20 on the table, um, but we might be getting some sort of block in a closed chain position or weight bearing position. Um, so I, I think getting into those, those objective measurements and making them a little bit more practical, I think is really important. And that's where we've been getting into force plates as well, right? Um, that's, that's my biggest thing with the strength um, is, is just, it's very subjective and it's, and it's really hard to say. And then even, even uh, so, so by textbook definition, um, right? You, your strength grades are zero to five. Um, pretty much everything we're gonna see in the outpatient is, is maybe like three minus to five. You're not really, uh, traditionally, I mean, if you're, if you're a neuro-based clinic, you might see, some, might see some twos and two pluses, things like that, which is much lower level strength. But as you start getting up towards that, that three to five there, textbook wise, it's gonna say that you need full range of motion to even have a three out of five. So that's, you can move your jo joint through the full range of motion. And, and I, I personally don't really like that standard because you know, if, you, if you're a very strong individual, but you lack a little range of motion, according to, according to our strength testing, you're a three out of five. Um, which I, I would much rather say like, no, this person's a five out of five in their available range, right? Um, and, and again, that's, that's why one of the biggest things why I was, I was looking for some sort of metric that we, could, that we could start to objectively measure that stuff a little bit more. So for our evaluation, it, it really comes down to, we do, the traditional, we do the traditional approach as far as getting traditional measurements, but we try to make them a little bit more, more applicable to daily life and whatever activity they're going to be doing, and then adding, adding some movement to them as well. And then the initial is, is I think it really starts with tissue tolerance and wherever their baseline is at. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to watch a lot of the PTs that, as you mentioned, strength, what is strong? I'll never forget when I was told the person's on uh, restricted uppers, they can do dumbbells, but just go light. All right, all right so 40 pound dumbbells, let's go. I, it was like like the, the heavens fell on my head that I put this person on 40 pounds and it was like they were supposed to be capped at say 15 or 20. Well, I said, that's, that's, that's a warm up. That's not light. This individual bench is 315. So I think when we do talk about objective things like strength, which is force, not having clarity or not having an ontology that's universal can get really tough. And, and, you know, one of the things that I know we say all the time, strength coaches, you, you need to have been a lifter or an athlete, or you need to have gone through rehab to understand what they're going through. I feel like it goes the same way for PTs is that they need to lift some heavy stuff. They need to move some stuff quickly because now it gives you a greater lens because if you finish your rehab and then you say, well, they're strong for me, but then again, that is a massive gap. It's a four month gap to return to play. Well, that's the strength coach's job. And, and I, I pick on our strength coach buddies in the industry. Some of us aren't really the greatest at the anatomy and physiology. Some of us aren't really the most clinical and you can't just hype your way through a rehab. You actually need to know some of the physiology, some of the physics and loading strategies as it relates to that individual. I'd love to get your opinion on for PTs, if they're looking to kind of go from good to great, how do they go about integrating that kind of traditional strength? Again, I mentioned you had a squat rack in your, um, yeah. in your clinic. One of the things we ran into is our uh, athletic training room actually didn't have enough weights. 
um, to be able to do some of our ACL rehabs. So I was actually, you know, very uh, excited to bring our AT up into the weight room so that that's really where you could physically see the meshing from the first floor yeah. to the fourth floor. How does that go about in the private sector? Yeah, I think, uh, I think in general, and you've probably heard, heard this before, but good, good PT is good strength conditioning and vice versa. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's very important that, that you need to understand both principles, you know, both parties, both parties need to, need to understand that. Um, a lot of times for me, uh, uh, personally, I, I really don't understand a lot of PTs that, that, you know, want to get into that sports world and want to train these athletes, um, who don't really have a background in any sort of lifting, like personally, I'm not just saying from an educational standpoint, obviously that's very important, but, uh, it's, it's hard to really dive into something if, if you're not that passionate about it. Um, so I think it's important that someone has a background in that um, because it's what you learn in school is just enough to get you, get you that degree and get you to pass the boards, but you need to, you need to be passionate about things. Um, so that's, that's really important. Um, and as far as bridging that gap, you're talking about in the, in the outpatient setting, right? Like how am I getting, how am I getting people to train a little bit heavier? Is that, is that kind of what you're asking there? Yeah, because in the college setting, you can go up and actually talk to strength and conditioning, say, I want this program, I want this for the next four weeks, go. I, I don't imagine the average PT listening that's in the private sector can go to the Gold's Gym, go to the LA Fitness and say, here's the program we want you to follow. Um, you know, it's just, there's a big drop off for private sector, unless you go to some high end, you're going to an Exos, you're going to a high end training facility. But again, means and ability are in between, but our actual private sector market of training options, PT options, and someone coming back, there's kind of this cliff in the middle. So, so what we try to do, um, and, and this is obviously something that we're going to continue to grow and, and do better with. Um, essentially we're getting a patient back to the point of insurance pretty much just cares about function, right? So once they're saying, okay, they're back to their, back to their functional level, uh, you know, insurance is basically going to say, Hey, that's enough. Uh, a lot of times we're able to, we're able to push them a little bit farther beyond their function and still be covered under insurance. But what, what we'll do at that point is we'll, we'll usually provide some sort of supplemental programming for them and then say, Hey, you know what, come in on a bi-weekly, I mean, not a, uh, come in, come in once a week, come in once every two weeks. Uh, we do that for like a, like four to six visits there. And I give them supplemental programming that they're going to do on their own. And, and that's where it becomes really tough where it's really patient specific. Um, so I have some, I have some high level high school athletes that have access to unbelievable training resources at home. Um, I mean, they're showing me their, their home setups and, and I I'd be thrilled to have them in a college in some ways. Um, they, they have access to some, some phenomenal equipment. And then I have some, some stuff on the other end where it's like, you know, it's a, it's a kid who's, you know, probably going to be, you know, a, a division two or division one athlete and they've got nothing. And it's like, all right, what are you, what are you doing on your own? So that's where it becomes very specific to that individual. Um, and then, like I said, insurance will, will often cut, cut them off. So sometimes those kids who don't have too much at home, uh, those are the people that I'd love to carry on a little bit longer, but at that point, insurance has cut them off. Right. So that's where, that's where it's really like, you know what, like, what do you have access to? Let's write a program to what you can do and, you know, come in, come in once every two weeks, once every three weeks. And we'll go over what you're doing, right? You're doing that program on your own. Um, and the last few visits that they have via insurance, I'm doing my best because we have a decent amount of stuff at, in the clinic to be able to show them this is what you're going to do. This is how you do it, right? Um, and then it, some of it is just going a little bit above and beyond too, uh, in the sense of 
if, if that kid has a, you know, if I'm using a Google sheet, I know we talked about a team builder or something like that, but they're like, you know, going on there and communicating with, with that athlete, uh, even when they're, even when they're not in, right. If they're coming once every three weeks, you know, the traditional PT model, well, you know, only when they're in, it's your patient, it's, it's a little bit different than being a trainer, but you kind of have to, you kind of have to do that a little bit. Um, and it's, it's great when you have, when you have a kid who's really willing to put in the work and you can see that and they come in three weeks later and you say, okay, you've been working on this kind of stuff. Uh, let's see where you're at. And that's where I use the, the plates a lot. Um, so for instance, today, today's my, my day off, but there's a kid who's coming in this afternoon. Um, he's following up with his surgeon tomorrow. He should be, he should be ready to go back to play. He's about 11 months post ACL. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do some stuff with him on the plates. He's been doing his stuff at home. Last time he came in, he looked great on the plates. And then his surgeon's going to get a, a very, uh, I'm going to summarize it in, in a good way. A couple, couple comparison reports for left versus right leg. And he's going to walk in tomorrow, hand his surgeon that, and everything should be good to go. Um, so, so being able to do those kind of things where you're, once insurance is, is running up, being able to say, you know what? No, you can still come in, come in once every other week. We'll do it. We'll do a cash rate and we'll, and we'll progress you on that way. Um, that's, that's definitely how, how we tend to deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I love how you talked about earlier, you can be strong. You can be strong through an ideal range of motion. You can be strong within a limited range of motion. You're now able to apply that into your practice. When, when you mentioned the plates, you've used it for a lot of different things, but when we we've talked about the jumping, so whether it's power output, whether it's impulse momentum, these kind of things that call them end state outputs, but then how are you doing it? And then how are you receiving it? And how are you receiving, you know, after your 10th jump, what does that system look like? And is the strategy that you're using going to be effective for long-term, um, you know, productivity? And why that's important is that everybody's heard all the claims, you know, it's injury, like that, that's not a thing. That's just not, it's marketing. It, when we talk about force plates, it's physics, but ultimately it's a language. And I love the way that you talk about incorporating the language into your practice. Cause I've seen you talk to other practitioners. I've seen you talk to your patients you're using the same language, but you're packaging it in different ways. And I, and I think it's really great, the work that you're doing. Walk me through when you've done these jumps, like you just mentioned a report. What are the, some of the things you're looking at? I know from talking to you, you're kind of the ideal case of you guys started it small and then you've rolled it out progressively on an individual basis and a team basis. What are some of the things that you're kind of looking at now? And, and let's just take an example of like this ACL. What are some of the asymmetries you were looking at? Or what were some of the things that you were concerned about? So, uh, for him from, so I think there's, I think there's almost two categories where it's like, there's stuff where it's like, I, I get really excited about it. Um, but I also know that's, that's almost for, for me, right. In the sense of, I know the surgeon, he's not going to be diving into diving into some of the things I'm looking at, right. When I'm looking at MRSI changing and I'm looking at the difference, you know, I'm looking at time to take off each side. Um, and I'm looking at, I'm looking at breaking phase, like percentage of the, of the total movement. Um, those kind of things are stuff that, that I'm looking at and I'm getting excited about them, but I'm not necessarily, you know, talking to the parents or they're talking to the kid too much about those. Cause I, I think that's, that's a little bit too in depth, but some of the, the are, are more so just the output measures as far as, um, and, and you'll see most ACL protocols. So this is a, this is a bear implant, which is something that a surgeon, one of the surgeons around here is doing. It's uh, you're taking, you're taking basically like a, like a sponge type substance, uh, and they're taking the distal and the proximal end of the ACL and they're weaving it back into the sponge, hoping it regrows. Um, 
it's a newer newer technique, a little slower early on for, for rehab. Uh, there's some weight bearing precautions, there's range of motion precautions, um, but the idea is uh, that if you're doing it in a younger individual, you don't have to do any anchoring, so you're not drilling into the bone. Um, so they're hoping that there's less OA later on in life. Um, you know, we'll see. Obviously, it's it's a new thing. Um, I think there's I think there's pros and cons to it. Obviously, the cons are you're slower early on. Um, that's where we really made sure we optimize using you know blood flow restriction training early on to try to keep some sort of some sort of strength base in there. But but things like that. But at, at, without diving into too much of that end of the protocol, right? It'll very clearly say on there um, re return to sport criteria, um, and I'm seeing I'm seeing more and more protocols get get a little bit further away than than uh, they used to be from like those you know triple hop for distance uh, uh, agility t test you know they're still on there but they're talking about jump height they're talking about strength uh, and and those are those are pretty much the, the the things I'm seeing across all all protocols now which which is great to see because I, there's been some scrutiny and there's some concern about the validity and the reliability of some of those functional tests. Um, because people can compensate really well sometimes. Um, but you put somebody on a plate and you have them do a single leg hop on their left and right leg, there's, there's no compensation there. So, so this kid tomorrow, I'll be sending him with his, to a surgeon and I'm just doing a comparison report. I think it's really easy to see to print out, a, print out a piece of paper. One bar graph will be left, left leg jump height. One will be right leg jump height, right? It'll have your, have your bar graph. And at the bottom, it'll have the number, right? The other one's going to have, um, just a, we're going to do an isometric pretty much a, we're doing a mid thigh pull right with a single leg on each side you can do it. i've also i've also played around with it i'd like to see how reliable it is and, and definitely you can you can tell me tell me what your thoughts are on this um with doing almost like in a back squat position but the rack's not moving right pulling a put up pull up bar there and doing like a single leg squat with the with the knee right keeping it either at whatever degrees you want whether it's 45 35 keeping it standardized there for me it's just really about one side versus the other side and as long as you can keep that standardized, I think I think you're pretty good there. Um, but that's that's something that that I'm that I'm going to do with him. And then uh, the other thing is uh, relative landing force. Right? I'm going to be looking at, and we're doing a single leg uh, drop on each side. So it'll just be one basically assessing strength, one assessing jump height, right, or power, and then the other one assessing our landing, right. So it'll be three three pages, very simple. Not many metrics, just each one of those metrics there. Um, because when he's coming into his appointment with his surgeon, I, I don't think the surgeon wants to sit there and look through all these metrics that they probably don't even don't even know. It's not it's not familiar to them. That's that's not necessarily something that they they spend a lot of time with. So trying to simplify it for them and also the parents and the kid, those output measures are are something that they can certainly look at and and understand. Uh, so that's that's what I I think I'm. You know, that, that's what I say. There's stuff that I want to look at, and then there's stuff that they probably want to look at. Sure, because a lot of those things, when we talk about the strategies, drive our decisions in the training stimulus, thinking about the barbell as medicine, thinking about load as medicine. A lot of those strategies aren't very super sexy, but hugely impactful in our decision making and either confirming what we thought we were going to do, or maybe, you know, opening our mind to something different. And ultimately, it is moving towards either greater resiliency, greater output, um, but it's certainly informative. And often those strategy things will happen um earlier on so we always talk about with the plates you're kind of looking at hopefully a two-week window two-week radar to be able to get ahead of things and changes like you said remodeling and, and tissue structures but i'd be curious to hear too um because i know we started playing with this 
you're not doing this just with patients. You guys are going to do stuff out in the community. We started looking at standardized norms. And, and again, the, the proverbial question is what's good? Well, are you trying to go division one? Are you playing in high school? Are you on a club? Do you have aspirations? Like, so good is really relative to your competition. When you're sending these reports out, is it just comparison of me versus me six months later? Or are you also looking at you're a high school basketball player? We've actually tested 300 basketball players like you. Yes, you are back. You have zero asymmetry. Um, you have you returned to 95% of your output. Your rehab is done, but you're actually 20% lower than the other individuals you're going to be competing with. Might you continue to do some development and training um, to get up to speed to them, or do you just stop at the individual? Yeah. So the way the way we've been doing it, which we just uh, this past Sunday, we just went to a volleyball club, and we think we did. We did actually evenly. It was 50 girls. Um, and then there was like three boys that we did that were there. Um, so it was the girls were all between, I think, 12 and 17. Right. So we we put them in different groups based off their based off their teams, based off their age. Um, and we we developed a brochure, which we're going to take to other places as well. And I'll, I'll kind of talk about how, how we're doing that. The brochure has essentially jump height, MRSI, um, relative landing. And then there's one other page on there for uh, looking at a back squat. And the back squat, we're going to like 80% of a one rep. We didn't do this with the volleyball players, but I'll say why we have that on there in a second. And then we're looking at left-right asymmetries uh, with that back squat, right? With peak force and, and I think another metric that we chose. Now on that brochure, try to put it in layman terms as, as easily as possible, right? Brochure has our name on it and then each page layman terms. And then there's a line at the bottom where we write in the, what they got, right? Um, and then, so we're going to basically use that for, for each thing we go to. Um, we're also going to index uh, some local CrossFit gyms. Um, and benefits for us is one, it gives us a lot of normative data, right? Benefits for them, it can give them a little bit of insight into their program and where they stand, right? But that was a huge question you get from all the girls and all the parents, what's good, right? You know, what's, what's good? Um, and on there, we, we kind of talked about general numbers that, that we could find. Um, but a lot of those girls, they, they already, they already kind of knew their vertical. That's, that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about that for college. Um, so I think it was, it was great to be able to give them that information as well. Um, and then it also, it's, it's giving us like exposure as well. So obviously, you know, it's, it's, I think it's mutually benefiting. And I think we can say to each girl, like, you know, we talked about on there, Hey, we want to be careful about a relative landing force over that, that 500%, right. Which I, which you've talked to us before about that. So it's like, I think giving those, giving people the, that information, they like to see a brochure that, you know, one little paragraph that explains it in layman terms, there's their number, they have that, they now have our information um, and, and we get to, and we get to keep their data. And now when I have a, a high schooler come in for a, you know, a high school volleyball player come in, I can say, well, I can compare you to these 50. This is what this looks like. Um, so I, I think that's very helpful. Um, we're going to, we're going to roll out going to, there's some, there's some CrossFit gyms in the area. Um, and the, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, we're going to look at, you know, have them do three jumps and then, and then do some squatting with like 80% of their one rep on there and, and look for asymmetries in that. And I think it's cool to be able to, you know, show the, which the volleyball program I had, they have a, that we just went to, they have a strength conditioning coach that, that oversees a lot of their stuff. So it's cool at the end, I can show them the quadrant report, right? And I can say, look, these girls, this is what they need, right? These girls need more, need more strength based. These girls need to work a little bit more on, on some power based, power based work, right? They're, you know, they're very, they're very strong, but they're, they're not springing these kind of things. Right. So 
kind of seeing that I, I think is really important. And then the coach as well, who's, who's, uh, who's a good friend of mine as well. It's, it's nice to be able to kind of show and be like, Hey, look, you know, that's kind of where we talk about, you know, in a very polite way, like this quadrant one, these, these are the people right here at quadrant. And then we start looking at studs, that studs and duds kind of talk. Right. Um, but obviously not, you're not saying that to the parents or anything like that, but you're, you, you can kind of talk to the coach if you have a good rapport and be like, look, these are, these are what you should be looking at here. And the good thing about that report, and I, you know, and again, I know when people hear studs and duds, they get, they get sensitive and upset, but the idea is at the high school level, you can actually make the biggest change, arguably developmentally, this is the biggest window you have for adaptations. And so I think I'm great. I get a report that says I'm not, it's not just that you can't play the sport anymore. It means you actually have a tremendous opportunity to develop now. And especially the best is when you get that skilled person who is succeeding in spite of their physical abilities to train that up and then to give that roadmap to go and do it. And so I think it's super helpful. And, and people need to hear those conversations because unfortunately, as you mentioned, what are they focused on? Jump, jump height, jump height. Can you touch rim? Jump height, jump height, touch height. Well, on the plates, as you mentioned, that backside, it's really sad when you see, say, three or four individuals that are jumping out of the gym, but they also have the worst landing strategies. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to go, this strategy isn't going to be conducive to longevity. We better intervene. And, and as you mentioned to the sport coach, you know, you got to protect your Ferraris. Ferraris can't miss oil changes. And same thing when we talk about any of these loading mechanisms that someone who's naturally bouncy, someone who's naturally twitchy may not have that eccentric strength to handle the fact that they're on a travel team, they're playing club, they're in the high school, they're a three sport athlete, they go year round, sometimes they need time off. And I'd be curious to hear too, when I did some testing this summer with high school athletes, which is a departure from the college where the tolerances are much tighter, the volatility, you wouldn't see an 18 inch vert and then a 27 and then a 22 and tw all over the place. It was very within an inch or two. What did you see within that high school bracket? Because I know I would, my jaw dropped when I was like, wow, some of these individuals have no clue. <laughs> if you do five jumps, all five jumps look completely different. And that's scary oh, yeah. for playing like a tournament that by week, by day three, you know, week four, they don't even know what they're doing. Yeah. <clears throat> so there was, there was a lot of variance. Um, I mean, I would, one, one girl in particular, her, her first jump was like 11 inches. Um, her second was like 14. And then it was like right back to like 12 inches or something like that. And it was like, and, and landing and even, and even like her relative landing. Um, and it wasn't even like that 14 where you'd expect to have the highest relative landing. I think her last one, she just landed really hard. Um, so you, you'd see a lot of variance just within the jumps as well. Um, and then, and then among girls is girls too. I saw, which I think this is an overall good thing. I saw a lot of variance more so in the girls who, who had shorter jumps, I would say, um, when I talk about shorter, when I say like jump heights, um, which I mean, maybe they're able to get away with it because they're not putting too much force through. Right. Um, maybe, maybe that's what's happening there. Um, where I, and I, and I saw some really poor mechanics, just knees diving in on during, during their unloading phase. And as they're getting towards breaking, like just, just collapsing in and then coming up. Um, so I, I saw that with, with, with a lot of the girls, but I would, I would think that I saw that a little bit more on some of the girls who had, had lower jump heights. So that's probably why they're able to get away with it. Um, they're just not putting that much force through right over, over time, who knows what's going to happen. Um, but, and also 12, 13, 14 year olds there, they can be pretty resilient. 
Well, I think you bring up a great point. They're resilient. They're in the best biological state that they could be in. They're not putting a ton of force through, but where it becomes a problem is that they start to progress in competitive sport. Exactly. What you were doing two years ago isn't going to be effective for where you are now. You've now gained 10 pounds. You've now gained 20 pounds. Just maturity-wise, you're jumping two, three inches higher. Well, you better get on that. And I think too, especially I'll speak to strength and conditioning, this is where, you know, you have the plyo gurus and the bands and the isometrics and the, the, you know, the strength people. And, you know, you get these kind of little tribes, we'll call them. I think now with the data, we're starting to see that it's, it's so much less about your belief and your feelings about training versus the physiological underpinnings that are happening now to this individual. And you need to, in those, some of those coordination people, jump rope, do your speed ladder, do, do balance things, do things that are going to address the low hanging fruit and not necessarily just say, well, you know, this is the way I did it. You know, therefore we're all going the same path. We now have that data. And like you said, if you take someone three inches higher in their vert, but their landing is atrocious, you're actually making it worse. So you're enabling that failure state to happen sooner, even though you have good intentions. That's why I think too, and, and again, I, I say this not just because I work at a company that makes plates, but I feel like data is be, going to become stand, basic standard of care. Um, just like the doctors, you know, look at blood pressure, they look at blood panels. Well, we can now measure force subjectively and we can add a, you know, objective component of, yeah, it looked like trash. It's confirmed on the plates it was trash. What do you see as being some of the biggest impacts on the PT side as it relates to modalities to deal with these issues? Yeah. Um, so as far as standardizing, standardizing a lot of that objective data, I think it's, I think that's very important. And that's the trend that, that medicine's going in in general. Um, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of initiatives now. So my company now, and this isn't necessarily too much PT related, but everything's, everything kind of comes around um, where they talk about like accountable care organizations, um, which is, which essentially you're, you get lump sums um, in order to, take care of a, a group of, uh, you know, so if, let's say, so Medicare is doing it right now. So Medicare says, okay, on average, um, you, you see this many Medicare patients and we're going to say that you guys are, are their, their primary providers for all medical needs. Um, we're going to give you X amount of dollars to treat those patients. If you do it, if you treat them, if you treat them better and do some preventative medicine and, uh, and then you get to basically keep the difference. Um, personally, I think it's kind of a gamble. Uh, I think I think you're kind of betting against the house there. I think Medicare and big insurance companies are always gonna always gonna win, but they love finding these these you know medium to larger size like hospital networks or physician-owned groups and, and doing that kind of stuff. So where that comes down comes down to us, we're trying to look at any sort of metric we can to be a predictor of saying, okay, how do we keep this per person healthy? How do we how do we track their progress, right? And that's and that's what you're saying as far as you know people looking at labs with with patients coming in, blood pressure, vitals, all those kind of things. They're trying to track that as much as possible, um, and that stuff continues to just trickle down as well, right? So if if we can start picking up on things, and this is just even in the older population as well, if we can start picking up on things uh, earlier in the PT world, we might prevent them from having a fall at home where then they. They, you know, they break their hip, they go in the hospital and it, and it costs so much money down the road. Um, so whether, whether I like the model or not, or whether we like the model or not, that's the way things are going. Everything is so data driven that you're, that you're trying to use data to, to save on cost and, and basically make your, make your company more profitable. 
um, in, in medicine. Um, so as much as I as much as I, I don't love the purpose of it, I, I do like the implementation of data and being able to say, okay, here, we're looking at this and this is what we're seeing. So obviously there's no initial uh, initiatives that are that are going on with us saying, okay, I need to look at uh, this person sit to stand on a force plate and see see how asymmetrical they are. This person's just, you know, we'll do like a Romberg stance where they're just standing there in quiet standing with their eyes closed, those kind of things, looking at sway and, and weight distribution between legs. There's nothing set in stone as far as oh we're looking at that stuff yet but i think as as time progresses uh quantifiable metrics that can be predictive of function uh especially in an older in an aging population is going to become more and more important so that's that's where i, I look at it as like a pt thing it's not just it's not just sports it's like we're, we're trying to we're trying to see you know who's who's at risk for for medical incidents in the near future that could be very costly yeah, I know Thierry Ertog talked a lot about metabolic syndrome and specifically when they look at like the belt, like looking at your belt, like size 40 and up, say for males, is kind of a red flag. And then you can start looking at blood sugar. So is the A1C now, you know, five trending seven or is it living in the fives or in the high fours? And then getting all of these things, which I think, you know, the United States, we haven't done a great job. You know, someone comes in with, like you said, patellar tendonitis, but they've got a BMI of 48. Well, yes, you, we can deal with this issue, but the injection, the pill, the NSAID, the pain that you're in, and now you're not moving is contributing to larger, larger factors for the last 10 years, you know, you've been putting yourself in the wrong direction. And that is much harder to claw back from than saying, Hey, you know, we're getting a little fluffy. Let's, uh, let's trim it back. Let's get active. And that's why, you know, when I've spoken to people, especially in, in the normative populations, just be active, ride a bike, you know, go for walks getting the movement back and especially post pandemic, everything's so easy. I mean, we can have a conversation right now on the computer and a lot of jobs can go remote and a lot of interactions can be sedentary. You almost have to manufacture your movement and treatment um, because we are getting so plugged in. And I think that the PT world could easily see something like that just to say, I don't care whether you're 40, 50 or 60, this is part of your basic, as part of your basic checkup. Uh, there was a study at a pit they, they did force plate jumps. It was 2,300 jumps, I believe. Um, with the population, it was 70 and older. So you had people 90 years old jumping on the force plates. And I was like, wow, if they can get that past the IRB board, they must have uh, gone through their procedures pretty well to do that. Because that's, that's an incredible data set for a, yeah. a population I wasn't really thinking about. But if we can do it there and then we can do it in middle school, well, that means everywhere in between, there's going to be similar trends. And I think that long longitudinally, we know strength is important. We know muscles important. We know movement's important. We can measure those three things. And so that could be very beneficial for a wide range of markets. Yeah, definitely. And, and going back to what you're saying, as far as uh, that individual patellar tendonitis, who's got a BMI over 40, those kind of things. That's definitely something that, that we try to push in our practice. Um, and, and going off of too, when you were saying earlier, uh, just, you know, somebody's coming in for a knee and we're just looking for like a a hormonal response, just a systemic response, right? You might be post-op ACL, you might be two weeks out, but you know, we're, we're training upper body, right? We're doing all these other things as well. Um, because we're, we're looking for that, for an overall response, right? If you're, if you're just focusing on that, that one spot, right, you're, you're kind of missing the ball there. Um, so I personally have no problem. A lot of times somebody's coming in with, with a knee issue and their BMI is over 40, you know, we're just, we're trying to find a way that you can exercise. That's, that's really what we're doing. We're trying to find a way that you can exercise without, without irritating your knee anymore, but 
because truthfully, that's that's probably the the biggest factor is probably the load, right? And when, when we really think about it, it's the that load on that knee is that's that's the biggest driving force. So to me, I uh, I, I know a lot of clinicians and stuff would be like, oh, no, we just got to focus on the knee. Let's give them some modalities, modality, you know, like vasopneumatic compression, or it's like throw a Normatec on them, or you know, put some heat on them, or something like that. Um, but truthfully, in in my opinion, you're not doing the person any favors by doing that. Um, you're giving them a little relief for maybe a small period, um, but but it really comes down to saying, you know, we gotta we gotta we gotta manage the load there. So if somebody's coming in for something, we we really are exercising in in more of a general general idea, not and just I that area. Those, I think those hard conversations are okay to be had if you can offer a solution. I mean, nobody wants to be told that hey, you're fat, that's why your knee hurts, but hey, listen, you're not where you want to be. You don't like the quality of life. We're going to address this acute issue right now. But like, as you mentioned, long-term, here's some other options. I think that those conversations, you know, yeah. you owe that to the, the patients as a practitioner if you know that that's actually what's going to be good for them and do it in a way with empathy and care that you can then provide them solutions. And I think that people really respect that. And I'd be also curious, have you guys addressed any of the supplement um, conversations as it relates to aid with um, surgery, either free, so before surgery and then after um, in that kind of holistic approach, or do you typically stay just more on the mechanical side? Uh, it really depends on if somebody's asking me something, then I'll, then I'll give my input. Um, but as far as like scope of practice, uh, not really supposed to step too much in, into that. Um, but if, but if somebody's asking me that I'll, I'll definitely give my input. Um, but to be honest with you, with the general population, uh, they, as far as filling, filling the holes of a, of a bucket, right. Those bottom holes, just general, general nutrition, sleep, right. Stress, those kind of things, manage those first, right. That's, that's kind of where I start with a lot of people. Cause they'll say, Oh, should I start taking this? And, and, you know, they're, they're coming in and okay, you know, their BMI could be over 40 and they could be just telling me how they didn't sleep last night, the night before, cause they had this and that going on. And, and, uh, you know, it's you know, really giving an extreme example here, but they're coming in smelling like smelling like cigarettes, things like that. It's like, listen, before we start talking about these supplements, like let's let's fill these bottom holes of the bucket here. Let's let's plug these holes first. Um, so that's that's where a lot of it really falls down to is like like I said, I'm not I'm not talking about supplementation unless they start bringing it up. Um, but for most of the general population it's, it's those simple, those simple things that, that will, we consider quite simple, right? Where it's like, you need to, you need to check off these boxes first before we start worrying about that kind of stuff. What have you guys done on the mental side? So moving into that paradigm and realm, I know there's a lot of research that talks about, you know, your ACL is good to go. The plates say you're good to go, but mentally the individual still hasn't recovered. How have you either addressed that via surveys or do you guys actually have a, uh, someone in mental health that works with your patients or, or in the field? Have you seen that at all? Yeah. Um, we don't, we don't have anybody that works on the mental health side. Um, I don't, I don't know how much would actually be covered by insurance in, in that regards. Um, it would be great. Um, what we do for a lot of chronic pain or individuals who've had something going on for a long time, like that ACL towards the end there. Um, I, I like a lot of, a lot of repetition within a pain-free range for a lot of movements. Um, this one, I'm, I'm more so thinking of, of somebody with a, like a chronic shoulder pain, uh, of, of some sort, right. Um, or even, even lumbar, right. Um, well, if they get, if they get pain with lumbar flexion, right. Take them to that point right before they get that pain. And we're just going to do a lot of hip hinges, 
right? We're going to do a lot, a lot of reps in there. And I'm talking like close to hundred reps, or I'm talking about going over to some pulleys with, with your shoulder, right? And then on the one side of the pulley, putting, putting a cuff weight and just having that shoulder come up to that spot right before we feel that pain and just doing over hundred reps there, just nice and light, moving it, um, getting into just, just about that pain-free range. And you'll see slowly, they keep going a little bit further and a little bit further. You do that over some time. That's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of like pain science stuff where we're just trying to retrain the brain to say, okay, these movements are not painful. I'm okay here, but you really just have to do like very little exposure to them into those, into those ranges, just expose them to that range. And then a lot of volume at, at that spot. And it slowly, slowly builds. So that's something we, I, we do for, for like that chronic pain more. So that pain science type stuff. I'd love if you could dive into that a little bit more, because I do think that that's something that people often don't understand is that does it hurt or is it going to hurt me are two different things. That doesn't feel good, but you're not going to make it worse. Uh, on the flip side, uh, you get the people with no governors where they'll push through the pain, you know, weakness is pain, you know, leaving the body, like, and all this kind of stuff and all, and all, and all these other things in between, what is it? And then when do you know, if you're doing it on your own and you're listening, what is the, you know, what is the thing that's actually happening at the cellular level? Yeah. Um, so when we, when we have a, when we have someone, a lot of times, we're we're at a luxury compared to a lot of people in in medicine as far as we get to spend a decent amount of time with that patient so i get to kind of understand that patient a little bit and and you'll figure out which ones are going to be the ones who will actually push through pain um i i would say 90 percent of patients tell me they have a really high pain tolerance right like i hear that all the time they go well you know i have a really high pain tolerance you, you hear that line quite often um whether they do or don't i mean you, you kind of get to see after working with them for for a few sessions um, so, and, and then we have to talk about what's going on. So I, I think it's hard to go without us. So I'll give a specific example, like a subacromial decompression. Somebody comes in, they have a subacromial decompression going on. Um, but they've had any sort they've had pain in impinging positions for the longest time, right? So anytime they come in any sort of horizontal adduction, any internal rotation, any end range flexion or abduction, these positions here, they start to get some discomfort. It's like, all right, well, now you just had a surgeon go in. They shave down the acromium there. They, they open that space up, you know, it's, and it's been, you know, four, six weeks after surgery. So that, it, that acute phase is, is over now. We're in that subacute range. We, we know you shouldn't have any pain there now, right? We, we really shouldn't. So there's nothing that's causing that impingement on the supraspinatus. Now we've opened that space up. So if we're going into, if we're doing some sort of pulley work, right, I'm okay, I'm okay with them going just to the point where they're saying like, Hey, you know, we, we go off of like a zero to 10, right? I'm saying, let's, let's keep it under a four. And we're going right to that moment and we're just doing a lot of reps. And I know, right, like if prior to surgery, right, we'd probably be fraying that supraspinatus because they have, you know, whatever, if they have a type two or type three acromium where it's hooked over a little bit more and it's really pushing down on that supraspinatus, then, then maybe, maybe we're, we're causing some damage. But I know if that's, been, if that's been corrected and it's open in that window, then I'm going in that window and, and we're coming just to where we're feeling that discomfort, where we get to like a three and we're doing a lot of reps there. And I, and I know we're not causing any tissue damage. So I'll, I'll go as much as we can, depending on whatever's going on within the body, if that makes sense. As far as if I know that, that from whatever intervention they've had, whether it's surgically or whatever condition they have, it's not causing any more damage to go into there. I'll, I'll go into that a little bit. Um, but it's certainly not beneficial to send somebody, send, send somebody through the roof with pain. Um, that's, that's, that's never really the answer. Um, and, and then if you're, if you will get into the same thing with when we talk about lumbar, 
lumbar stuff as well, right? Any sort of radicular symptoms, uh, those are obviously a red flag, right? If I'm pushing you in a position and you're getting a radicular symptom, um, obviously there's some sort of nerve root compression that we're, that we're causing there, some sort of neural tension component. Um, we're gonna stay away from, we're gonna stay away from that. Um, but if it's just like that, that, hey, I feel a little achy when I'm doing this, and I know that there's nothing mechanically that's, that's problematic there, we're okay. We're okay doing that because we kind of have to retrain the brain and say, no, these movements are okay now. Right. When we talk about the back too, that's a great point of, of getting into there. That's a touchy area because you hear people say, you know, lifting compresses the spine, axial loading, 10 out of 10 bad, don't ever do it. Um, but then the sport that they play involves them smashing into someone, which is what they want to do. We're not training it in the weight room. They get hurt on the field. At least it wasn't in the weight room. That That's not good. Um, and there's kind of this chaos as it relates to the back because you need to train it. And I often wonder when we hear people making these wild marketing claims of, you know, the squatting's bad, deadlifting's bad, power, Olympic lifting, terrible, um, all these things. How do we go about training the low back and, and understanding too that any athlete that plays serious competitive sports, you know, we would get people would go to a, a Cairo and it would be like, oh, your back is destroyed and, you know, all these kind of um you know, crazy diagnoses, which is wild from an x-ray, but whatever. Um, we're now supposed to deal with this. How do you safely train the back? And then what are some of the things that you've seen that have worked well? Because from a personal experience, we noticed that especially rotational athletes at higher velocities have to almost be treated in a different bucket at like 95 miles an hour on a lacrosse shot. There's so much torque going through the SI joint that often the thing that made them strong enough to be great is the thing that will end them if we continue to load them up. And so we had to come with different loading strategies. Could you just give kind of an overview of the back and some of the things that you think would be uh, a good way to approach it? Definitely. So uh, it starts with education with the back um, just because of the amount of misinformation that's out there. Uh, a lot of people come in with just these, these, these beliefs that their spine is very fragile and that, that they have all these, these terrible things They'll you know, they'll say, I, I was told I have degenerative disc disease. I was told, you know, I have the spine of an 80 year old and I'm 50 years old. Right. And you, you hear this, you hear this constant trend. Um, and it, it's definitely frustrating to hear, but when I hear that, I have to kind of take a step back and be like, all right, listen, they, they don't know this kind of stuff. They, they believe this stuff. And, and sometimes when someone comes with that, I, I almost sit to myself and say, okay, this eval like this evaluation I'm doing with this person, I almost say add another 15 minutes. Cause I, I know where this is going to have to go. Right. It's starting off with a conversation at that point. Um, and, and I also think it's important to try to bridge that gap in that conversation. So a lot of times they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm here and, and this is crazy. I don't know if you might not know this. Um, you'll have patients come into PT a lot of times just because they'll have a surgeon tell them, Hey, listen, you need a, you need a laminectomy and a fusion. All right. And insurance isn't going to pay for it. So I got to send you to PT. You're going to go there for six weeks. Come on back to me. And these people come in, I go, okay, how, how's your back feel? Uh, well, if I do a lot of this, I get pain. And I'm like, okay, well, do you have ridiculous symptoms right now? Like you have pain going down your leg. I explain what that is. They're like, no, only if I do this. And then uh, immediately in my head, I'm like, okay, this person, like, I almost look at it as almost like a personal challenge. Like this person should not get surgery, right? They, they do not need it. If, if, they, if they can find themselves in positions that alleviate their symptoms, we can build from there, right? Um, so but I'm not going, I'm not going to start off right away and say that because the second you're combative against whatever their surgeon said, their buy-in is going to be really tough. So what I start to do is I try to bridge the gap and say, okay, your surgeon wants to do a laminectomy, right? 
What that means is he's taking pressure off the nerve root. Okay. And then I basically show them, I find, I go through positions with them in movement and I find positions that decrease their, their symptoms or find positions that increase their symptoms. And then we can say, okay, based off of these positions that are decreasing your symptoms, right? Um, you're likely having nerve root compression because of this, right? Could be stenotic changes, could be discogenic pain, whatever, whatever the source may be there. Um, once we find that, I say, okay, so this position that, I'm, that you're putting in, that I'm putting you in right now, whatever stretch or whatever position we're in, um, you feel less symptoms. So yes, I feel less symptoms. So then you're basically saying, what I'm doing right now is opening up the space around that nerve root, which is the same thing the surgeon would be doing with the laminectomy. They're removing a piece of your lamina, which is part of the bone, and I'll show them a picture, you know, show them a picture. They'd be taking this part out, taking the pressure off the nerve. That's exactly what we're doing right now. Then that fusion part is they're putting a, basically a bracket on the front of the, the vertebrae, on the front of the vertebral body, and they're locking that vertebrae together, right? That's the same kind of thing we're doing right now when we're working on this core stability work. We're working on isometrics in three planes, right? We're working on, we're working on an isometric, like a like McGill's big three, right? So you have, you have abdominals on the front, then we work our obliques, then we work our, our erectors and our paraspinals. So this big three is the modified curl up, some sort of variation of a side plank. I will vary that depending on whatever the patient can do. And then a bird dog, right? Just starting there where it's like, okay, these first stretches, these things that we're doing, we're taking the pressure off the nerve. It's the same thing the surgeon wants to do. Now we're stabilizing the back there. So I think that's really important to start to bridge that gap to kind of show, hey, we're all on the same page. Let's just try to do it this way first, right? Um, and you, you get some good patient buy-in when you do that. Uh, and and really, really trying to get away from any beliefs where it's like, oh, your things are out of alignment, right? I, I basically show them the anatomy where it's like, if somebody could palpably feel that your spine is rotated, right? We'd probably have, you'd probably be paralyzed in your legs, right? Like if, if you could palpably feel that a, that a lumbar vertebrae is rotated, right? Where it, it's not happening. Um, and when, even when you look at the report of an MRI, you, you're never going to see an MRI say, uh, you know, L3 is rotated, uh, you know, to the left compared to L4. And it's just like, because that doesn't, it doesn't really happen. And when it does happen, it happens during movement and it's millimeters of extra, extra excursion that happens, just millimeters of movement. Um, again, that's why SI, SI palpation, when you're looking for any sort of innominate rotation is, it's not very reliable. Um, it, it's, it's very hard to feel, right? The SI joint, some, some studies show maybe it moves three to four millimeters. Um, and, and most of the time when someone's having SI issues, it's, it's hypermobility issues at the SI joint anyway, um, which is why it sees such a higher incidence in, in pregnant women. Um, so just kind of getting those beliefs of saying, hey, your spine is not fragile, right? And then how do, we, how do I make it, make it so I'm in ingredients with this, you know, this top-notch surgeon, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm, you know, where I, where we are here, 50 minutes to 60 minutes away from New York city, somebody goes down to hospital special surgery, somebody goes down to Columbia or whatever. And, you know, I've seen so-and-so from this, you know, he was, he was Harvard educated. He's the best in the world at this. And he told me this, and it's like, yeah, he's probably not wrong from what he knows um, as far as what his intervention would be. He's yeah, he can do it that way, but let's show that we're in, in agreement with that individual. And then let's, let's, let's start in a pain-free, pain-free motion, working on pain-free positioning and then work on core stability from there. In the, in the least degrees of freedom on a table um, and then build it all the way to functional movement. So that the point where at the end of, you know, six weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it's going to take, you know, you're doing suitcase carries, farmers carries, sled pushes. Um, and then, and then even getting back to like building tissue tolerance. Um, so like where I see a patient come in on day one, like I, like I just went over or decreasing nerve root compression, we're working on core stability at the end, 
I love getting that, that same patient if they're, you know, a, an active 30 year old, um, that last day might, might look like them doing, them doing a little bit of, uh, loading on their spine under fatigue. Right. So I might have them doing, doing a circuit of, you know, 15 calories on the assault bike, a front rack hold of 30 seconds where I've taught them early on how to, how to work on intra-abdominal pressure and how to work on core engagement in a supine position. And I've, I brought it to a half kneel, to a quadruped, and then to a standing position. And now we're doing a hold here, working on a little tissue, and then coupling that with a suitcase carry and just doing a circuit of something like that. So that's kind of where I see them at the end, right? And a lot of people are are always surprised kind of by the end when they're when they're able to do that kind of stuff. And they're like, is this going to be safe for my back? And I'm like, yeah, and we and we got to do this for your back because this is this really is what's what's most helpful for you and and this is everyday living, right? You should be able to carry that bag of groceries in those kind of things. And that shouldn't be close to your tolerance. That shouldn't be right at, right at your limits, right? That, that bag of groceries should be real low compared to where your limits are. And if you hover around where, where your limits are, we're, we're asking for trouble there. So I think when it comes to the back, it's, it starts with education. Um, and, and as far as a program, when we, when we get into what we're actually doing with them, it's pain-free positioning and working on, working on progressive loading um, and core stabilization. And, and when I say core stabilization, I, I don't mean that most people have a weak core. I think most people just don't know how to activate or maintain a stacked position. I think keeping a stacked position um, is, is really important. Yeah, and I think the other elephant in the room is that if you're in pain, you can find anybody that'll, that'll give you a solution. Some, someone will oh. give you surgery. And we would always have to kind of caution athletes, in your brain, you think that if I get this surgery, and, and again, not a doctor, but sometimes surgeries have to happen, but yeah. there's a big in between where have you exhausted every other resource? Cause the other thing is that when we do this surgery, there's no going back. Like we can't say, you know what? I actually want to you know, put it back in unfuse and go. And at any time we start talking about massive structural changes in the continuum of interventions from, I don't know, stretching to surgery, you're going right to the, the kind of final thing. And I, I think oftentimes individuals that did jump right to that, we're like, wow, this didn't get rid of my pain. And you know what's funny? A lot of the rehab looks like a lot of the stuff that I could have tried with my original parts. Um, you know, may, maybe I should have given that a shot. And I think that's super, super tough. And, and like, as you mentioned, we saw a lot of problems, individuals standing up tall. Yeah, you can brace and compress. As soon as you start lowering them in deeper hip flexion, there was a couple of drills. I forget the old school coach that, that used to use this. Go try to do a press or something at the bottom of a squat. The belly is distended. The pelvis is tilted. They can't do that. They, they almost lose a connection with that subsystem. The deeper the hip flexion goes. And so we started doing that with some of our stronger gifted athletes go and do a press out of the bottom of a lunge, do a press out of the bottom of a squat. And it, it was, it might as well have just been a brand new uh, experience, like a, a new, yeah. new lift for them, even though they were accomplished lifters, those deeper range of motions, it's almost like the low back and torso kind of cut out. Yeah. If you, so we, we do, we do that all the time. Um, if you take an individual into quadruped and you have them do a bear hold and we really, we really cue serratus and terry just pressing out and we get your abs on, um, that position right there, if you invert that, that's pretty much just a squat, right? Um, so I will have with some people who can transition from that position, we'll put them in a bear hold, um, just get abs on in that position and then slowly have them walk hands back, come back to a squat where they're reaching out and then coming back and transitioning between those those two faces there. And then even just taking some sort of a resistance band, putting it just like if you were to do push-ups with them, put it around your back, reaching out, getting abs on, and then doing squats with that, just to understand pressing at that bottom position. How do you stay stacked there? How do you stay nice and tight? Um, 
and that's that's kind of what I was what I was starting to get at before when I say we teach them how to activate that in like a supine or a hook lying position, and then we bring that through bring those bring that through the positions again. That's that's almost like SFMA stuff where we talk about like the um, I don't know if you ever seen like the four by four exercise matrix with SFMA where it talks about you have your your supine and then it goes to half kneel then quadruped and then uh, uh, standing and, and it might be quadruped or half kneel flip there. Um, but essentially then you have external cues to get that pattern. We call it, they call it a pattern assist in the, in the SFMA there um, where it's, where essentially I'm giving an external cue to, to get that stacked position, right? So if you're laying on your back, I might have you in a hook lying position with like bands pulling them straight down to get your abs on. And then we might do a March, right? And then, and then I can bring, bring into, bring into any position from there. And that, and then eventually I can get you to a standing position where you're pulling down, doing a March there. I do that a lot of times with some older patients as well, um, but just teaching them where, where should I find that position there, that stack position and, and how do I do that? It's very easy to do it when you're laying on your back, but how do I do that in a standing or, or actual squatting or any, any sort of movement where you're ascending stairs or reciprocal pattern movements. So progressing that I think is really important. And we started getting into a little bit too, speaking of get, heading towards the back and that region, have you seen any interventions with the pelvic floor kind of, there's been a, a new kind of resurgence and bring that to the forefront, especially with some of our female athletes where we actually had some incredible, incredible specialists that could go in. And again, that's a whole region that they don't talk to you about in school, but yeah. how important that was not only for quality of life, but again, to a population that's been underserved, it's made a tremendous difference. How have you seen that? Or do you guys have any kind of, um, interaction with that in your practice yeah so it's funny you bring that up uh that's something that we're we're looking for right now we're probably going to get somebody per diem to start coming in um not just not just for the athletic population which is very important um but we've just been there's there's a big need for it and there's not a lot of people who specialize in it so uh one of our pts she primarily does pediatrics um and when i say pediatrics she's working on like infants um a lot of times like torticollis things of that nature with with infants that come in for pt um, so you get that question a lot from, from new moms talk about pelvic floor stuff. Um, and then, uh, like I said, since we're physician known, uh, one of our urologists literally came up to me the other day and was like, Hey, do you guys have a pelvic floor specialist? And I was like, uh, no, he's like, he's like, I'm not kidding. I could fill your schedule. He's like, I'm getting asked it all the time. Um, so that's, that's something that we're going to have to fill that need, uh, pretty soon. Typically speaking, it's not normally, not normally a male who does it. And, and it's not necessarily an interest of mine. Um, just because it, it can be like, you'll, you'll have to do like intravaginal exams and things like that. Um, which obviously a lot of, a lot of females wouldn't be too comfortable with the male and me personally, that's not something that I want to do either. Yeah. Um, but and, it's, and it's, I think though, in those situations though, hyper-specialization is understanding that there's a need for it and finding that solution. And again, you know, if that's going to be a predominantly female role, um, you know, that that's fine. As long as it gets in there, you know what I mean? And the fact that a urologist is actually approaching, you about this need that mean that means there's people that are suffering and that means that there's people that need yeah. those services and, and i think you know as you mentioned as a male practitioner knowing how to shuttle or how to get someone into that right space um that's what we do across the board right we do the same thing when we send them to a specialist versus an internist versus um you know stuff like that um you know it's really kind of cool to see that coming because i do think though especially as we get into the highest level of performance that's going to have to be something that's taken into consideration even on the performance side of doing some of those preparatory things. Cause I know, as you mentioned, 
that kind of subject can can go from you know actually hands-on mechanical stuff to things that the strength coach should be aware of and some of the different drills that we do um, each and every day and so some of our female athletes deserve that yeah yeah I think a lot of it comes down to that lumbo pelvic stability which is which is really important um, and and I and I'd be curious too to look at uh, instance of, of lumbar spine injury as well in individuals with with a poor pelvic floor right we talk about like that I'm sure you've heard that, that analogy before, but right, we look at the, the pelvic floor as that bottom of the soda can and the diaphragm is the top of the soda can. And it's like, once you get that hole in that soda can, right, you can stand on a soda can and it'll be nice and steady, but if you pop that lid open, right, it's gonna collapse, right? And we just lose intra-abdominal pressure there. Um, so if we're, if we're losing intra-abdominal pressure, especially during lifting activities, which is what a lot of females are, are having that, right? I, I don't think that's a good long-term solution. I'm not saying the second that happens, someone's gonna herniate a disc, but if that's happening a lot for a lot of your female athletes, um, if they're losing, if they're losing that stability of the pelvic floor during, during any heavy lifting, I, I can't see that as a good long-term strategy for success for the, for the spine. Definitely not good. Well, now kind of moving forward to what you're looking forward to and what you're excited about, you guys are obviously top notch, but I know you're not sitting back and just resting. What are you investigating? What is your group investigating over the next six months to a year, um, that gets you excited to add to your practice? Yeah. Uh, so a lot of it, a lot of it stems around the force plates. Um, and I, and I, and I know I've, I've harped on that a lot, but I really think that there is a big avenue for outpatient PT clinics to have force plates and, and not just, and not just because of the data that it gives us, but because it, it can put you on the map a little bit too. And, and I think when done correctly, I think the, the information you're able to provide surgeons that are referring you certain cases, like I, I think it can be I think it can be very helpful to everyone at play. So for us, it's really integrating those in um, is is like our biggest push right now. And these outreach and these outreach opportunities that we are, as far as going, like I said, going to going to volleyball, going to CrossFit gyms. Um, high schools are a little bit hard to crack um, in some ways, just because of bringing someone in, permission slips, those kind of things, um, which. We're figuring that kind of stuff out. We're, we're working on that stuff, but a lot of travel programs are very open to it. Um, there's a school district right uh, right next to where we practice that's very good at wrestling. You know, they have kids who are going to Penn State, and they 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 have a really good program. Um, so, getting into those clubs, we're that's what we're working on right now, and and we're doing pretty well, making some traction, getting our foot in the door there, and and getting some of that data, which can be mutually benefiting to to all parties at hand, um, and. And just the the value and, and when we talk about you have as much as as much as we want to geek out about just the the clinical stuff um there has to be some sort of roi when when we talk about the force plates and the the biggest example that that i've been talking about with my coworkers is like you know you're given you're given a surgeon data about somebody they just sends you for an acl they send you one more acl um over that patient's care if they're there for four or five months you know, that's, that's five, $6,000 right there that you're getting extra just by one more ACL a year. And it's like, if you're able to do that, um, that's, that's phenomenal. So not only, not only do we get to treat things that we love and that we're excited about and track, track data, it's, it's helping us out as a business as well. Um, so I, I think that's probably what we're most excited for is continuing to grow our outreach um, to, to parents, to coaches, to young athletes and, and surgeons as well. Awesome. Well, you know, I always, I like to ask a couple of questions here at the end. Uh, the first one is if you could go back in time you, and you can pick whether it's this college or the moment that you wanted to get into this, what would you go tell young Andrew 
you know, who's all excited and bright eyed and bushy tailed, what would be your word of advice to him? Uh, I would say an undergrad, uh, make sure to capitalize on some sort of exercise science or strength conditioning program. Uh, I, I think that can be very, very helpful. You, you're taking 18 credits a semester, which, which is obviously a lot, but um, push yourself, push yourself to, to take up any opportunities you can, any sort of internships you can at any, any universities or any colleges and study underneath, you know, some good strength coaches, because that, that is a really important part of the practice as far as PT, especially when therapeutic exercise is one of your best interventions, you know, really, really pound that base. Well said. And lastly, what, uh, if you had a magic wand to bring on two guests for the show, cause we like having practitioners like yourself that are dialed in, who would you think would be good to have on the show? Uh, I mean, obviously, obviously I'll, I'll go big there. Um, I, I think Gray Cook is pretty good. Um, I know a lot of, I'd be curious how good he is with like younger metrics, like, like some new, newer stuff coming out. Um, and uh, Pat Davidson. I don't know if you know Pat Davidson at all. No. Um, he's, a, he's a strength, he's, a, he's an exercise science guy. He was a professor at Springfield College. Um, he's a good guy to look up. He's kind of a, a no BS guy, uh, straight to the point. He's a, he's a pretty good strength conditioning coach. That's awesome. We'll have to get him on the show. Well, I thank you so much. Um, I know we get a lot of questions about uh, follow-ups and contact. What's the best way for someone listening to be able to get in touch with you and, and reach out if they want to talk more? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I would say Middletown Medical Physical Therapy. That's the, that's the name of the, the business that I'm working for. Um, we have a website. We have an, we have an Instagram. Uh, I think it's MMPT. Uh, uh, 845. I think that's the, that's the Instagram. Uh, we have somebody who heads up that, that whole aspect of things there. So I think they're also on TikTok as well, but Middletown Medical Physical Therapy website, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And you'd be able to find me right on there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. And we'll, we'll talk soon. No problem. Thank you.